0: First, uh, first four paragraphs. Just talk about what we were talking about a little while ago. When you know, does it matter when the writings were written or who written that, Wrote them? Who written them? Who wrote them? Um, as long as we know that they are reflections of the Buddha's words or the Buddha's words themselves, and. um so he just goes into a little exploration of that, talking about um, some of the different texts that are used, and then commenting on how uh, that they weren't all necessarily spoken directly by the Buddha, but sometimes they were um, written later by scholars. And I thought it was interesting. He points out at the very bottom of the page that the Heart Sutra, something that I know I've studied quite a bit. Um, it's believed by contemporary scholars that the Heart Sutra was composed in China and then translated back to Sanskrit, right? He says, you know, making it even more complicated to sort of feel, you know, strong about that teaching, but at the same time, he says it's, it's beautiful, it's profound, and it's holy, and it's important, right? So, you, we, and he says, you know, we have to decide for ourselves, you know, the Buddha told us to take the teachings apart, right? Test them like gold, and that also means we have to test. Um, we have to decide what we want to choose to accept. And huh. It's so interesting. That, that blows it. it out of the water. <laughs> Ultram, well, Geshe Toltrum said something different, but it's really interesting reading this now that he's been. So going, what did Toltrum so say? Um, he said that it was actually written down by. Um, because right? keep in mind, he says, most contemporary yeah. scholars yeah. believe. He says, most contemporary scholars believe. Right? <laughs> scholars, oh, too. Yes, yeah. yeah, scholars. Definitely. That's at the bottom of page five. Right? Because remember, Dr. Yeah. Professor Garfield is a professor of Western philosophy who studies personally yeah. Buddhism. So it's always going to be flavored by, and then he said that in the very beginning, so I'll point that out, too. And right? this is from But, but, but he, and he does yeah. qualify it by saying most contemporary scholars. And we're talking about scholars, not necessarily teachers, right? So just be aware of those nuances when you're... Yeah. Right? And who was it saved for? Was it saved... What do you say, like, Shantideva? Who was it saved for, again? The actual Prajnaparamita um, Sutra? Wasn't it saved for somebody who was revealed later or something like that? Was it, um... Remember Am I remembering this right? Because do we were know. looking at different guesses. I think the maybe the maybe the way you're phrasing it is not jogging my memory. Okay. Hmm. Did you say it differently? He said something like the text was like or the sutra was. Oh, is it usually in the teacher? Who they say brought it forth? F- he or he used a, a, a lot of people. Yeah, I know he said... Sorry, we're totally... No, 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 it was a good segue, actually. So I'm at the top of page six now, second paragraph, where we go into a little bit of an exploration of the Heart Sutra, right? Mm. So when we encounter the scene of the Heart Sutra there at Vulture Peak, um, apparently a beautiful place in that area, apparently the Buddha is there with an enormous assembly of bodhisattvas and celestial beings, and the Buddha is engaged in a very particular meditation which is often translated as the meditation of the enumeration of phenomena. And according to Garfield is that he is really considering the enormous diversity of constantly arising and ceasing dependent phenomena in the world, right? Just a flow of creation. So in the Heart Sutra, there is a disciple Sariputra, who asks a particular bodhisattva, as he puts it. Um, I think a question. That's Vajrapani. And the oh, no, bodhisattva that no. he asks no, the no, question no. of, he he's very careful to 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 point out what he sees as an inconsistency here, right? In the, I'm in the third paragraph of page six, and he says the, the bodhisattva that he addressed was Chenrezig. Right, mm-hmm. the uh, the bodhisattva of compassion, right, love. When you would have expected that he would have addressed manjushri, right, for the perfection of wisdom. And if you look down at like the last four uh, or five sentences here, it all boils down to the reason he, the very last sentence, the reason he did that is because the motivation for wisdom is compassion, right. And the question that he asked was, how should somebody who, and that's in the, the very first sentence of the next paragraph, how should somebody who wants to practice the profound perfection of wisdom practice? How should you practice if this is what you want to do? Right? And he asked that of a compassionate being, because it's the compassion that brings forth the wisdom. Who is, who is this M-O-R? Avalokiteshvara Buddha, is the compassion, right? Yeah, yeah, it's another or name for Chen Chenrezig That's who the Dalai Lama is supposed to be in an body I thought, right? And or an mind Right, and, and, yeah. and yeah. also Kuan Yin, <laughs> comes, Kuan Yin comes out of that same, right, that compassion okay. So that's the same being, but many, a lot of Buddhist beings have multiple names Right? Because they have yeah, slightly different... Lost, yeah, you and me both. Again, well, I wanted to make the family tree, but... Chen <laughs> Rizik is... Um, I think that's the Tibetan, Avalokiteshvara is the Sanskrit. Yeah. And then Kuan Yin, I guess, is... It is Chinese. one of the consorts. She's the consort of... Is that in the Chinese language? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, so he replies somebody who wants to practice the profound perfection of wisdom should see phenomena in the following way and the way he talks about is form is empty that emptiness is form that form is not different from emptiness and that emptiness is not different from form what? He goes through all that in the next couple of paragraphs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So in the next paragraph, he explains that what we're talking about here when we're talking about form and these other aggregates are the objects of knowledge, those things that we encounter around us, right? The thing we call cup, the thing we call pen, the thing we call table. Those are the objects of knowledge and that they are empty of essence, of inherent existence, all that stuff that yeah. Emily's yeah. been taught, right? That Emily and the other teachers talked to us about, you know, that, that they're the identity of the chariot, of all, all that, right? Um, that there's nothing from the side of the object that makes it the object. Mm-hmm. Nothing that remains permanent and independent. When we're talking about form being empty. The form of the pen is empty. And so then in the next paragraph he talks about the next part, this, the Avalokitsvaras um, answer, those are considered the four famous lines. You might hear someone talk about those and their form is empty, emptiness is form, that part. Mm-hmm. So in the next paragraph he talks about the assertion that emptiness is form. Um, and so what he's saying is like he uses the example of a microphone right like he's holding the microphone and it's clearly there it's clearly a microphone there's no illusion there but because we know it is a microphone right we named it that but going back to the other one the form is empty but we, but we know it is one it's, it's right there the microphone doesn't inherently exist but it's emptiness does, right? Mm -hmm. And he talks about how you, you can't really separate that. I can't say, here, you take the microphone and I'll take the emptiness. The microphone, by definition, is empty. The fact that we call it a microphone explains that it's empty, right? We had to name it in order to understand it. So, and then he points out at the very end of that paragraph, the last three lines, so the second line in the Heart Sutra says, take reality seriously. It might be empty, but it's the only reality you've got. To grasp the emptiness as if it's the reality behind it is to toss away the only world we have. So when people say, the Buddha said there's no self, well, that wasn't true. He didn't say there was no form. He just said that form was empty. Right? That's, uh, when she talked about that, that was so easy. Mm-hmm. How did she explain that? It? Just, like just like when did, it was just to me that it, it just was, you know, we call that a chair. We call those three lines an A. You know, inherently they don't have any meaning. They don't have, they're, they're a form, but they don't have any meaning until we ascribe a meaning to them. Mm-hmm. Like defining terms at the beginning of a piece of legislation. Yeah, or like <laughs> your first course in economics. Right, And I was thinking, you're an economics, and you're an economist, a scientist, and a <laughs> public policy person. It doesn't surprise me that you couldn't grasp the The challenge, of course, is applying that understanding to everyday life, right? <laughs> I like that he says, like, you know, it's still it's what you got, kind of thing. It's right. Still, you know, it's grist for the mill, you know? Right. Don't don't be the one of those silly people that says, "Oh well, if there is nothing that really exists, it doesn't matter what I do." Then suicide would be completely okay. Right. All of these things would be totally fine, and that also would not work with the view. That's good. Your dad was talking about the middle (laughs) finger. But if you take one thing independently like that, then you just kind of lose the whole (laughs) dynamic. So, then in the top of page seven, the next paragraph. Form isn't different from emptiness. Emptiness isn't different from form. Trying to right, if you don't make a microphone, you don't get a microphone. Try and understand what it is to be a physical thing that's made up of different stuff. The form that I am isn't really different. Emptiness because it's gotta be labeled. To try to understand what it is to be a physical, try to understand what it is to be a physical thing, like a microphone. What is it to be made of stuff to be physical, which we are? Is it to be made up of parts that depend? Is it to be made up of parts, and to depend for its existence on parts? That is part of what it is to be a physical object, if there's no parts, there's no object. So if we weren't put together, it wouldn't be a pen. it wouldn't be a microphone, it wouldn't be a pan. And then it's also dependent on that imputation, that naming of it, right? You can put the form together, but until you name it... So emptiness is form, and form is emptiness, they have to go together. The next paragraph he says, to be empty is depend upon parts, it's about four sentences down, to be empty is to depend upon causes and conditions, to be empty is depend upon mere imputation, but that's just what we said to be physical form is as well. Form and emptiness don't just happen to be related, they are the same thing. If it's not Can't change, and everything changes. (laughs) And he touches on that in the next paragraph. It's good that I'm now holding an empty microphone because if I'd been given a non-empty microphone, I'd be real in trouble, right? It wouldn't even—it wouldn't project sound. It wouldn't do anything. It would just stay like it is always. Yeah, I did too. (laughs) So, third paragraph down, about four lines down, five lines down, whatever is dependently originated, that's emptiness. That being a dependent designation is the middle way. Since there is nothing that is not originated dependently, there is nothing that is not empty. There's nothing that's unchanging, right? So there's nothing that's not empty. Something that we can know, whether ourself or something external to us, every object of knowledge can be known only because it is dependently originated, only because it depends upon causes and conditions only because we can impute an identity to it, and that's only because it's empty. Emptiness isn't non-existence. I love this. It's the only mode of existence that phenomena can have. so he says in the next paragraph that Nagarjuna says, whoever understands dependent origination understands suffering and its origin and its cessation and the path. That's those four noble truths, right? In the middle, but since dependent in origination and emptiness are the same thing, that also means that if you understand emptiness, you understand the formable truths. It <laughs> also, of course, means that if you don't understand emptiness and dependent in origin, you don't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then he talks about how Studied the four noble truths, and that if it wasn't too good for him, it shouldn't be too good for us. Then <laughs> <laughs> we on the Dhamma. Questions? Now I'm trying to pronounce the name of the sutta on the third line in the bottom. Dhamma kaka paritta That's the one I tumbled over last time that I was supposed to be confident and clearly I still am not. <laughs> <laughs> some teacher who's, who knows is like familiar with Pali and Sanskrit and said that Pali sounds like, um, like baby's sounds good. Sanskrit. Yeah. Which I agree, looking at it. It's interesting because I also noticed that Tibetan teachers pronounce Sanskrit different than Indian teachers, which is like huh. Because <sighs> they can't say you mean Actual Tibetan teachers were from like. Get from Tibet, way? yeah. Yeah, because they, say they can't say so certain words yeah. um, or The to Dalai Lama, Lama too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> 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 like the first one I heard Prashna Paramita said by a Tibetan teacher, I was like, "What? So it was the Dalai Lama who's talking about it. Like, uh-huh. What are you talking about? <laughs> 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 Prasna, like, oh, what?" So, any questions about any other questions about where we are so far? It's about 20 after 8. We can keep trudging through the second. There's a few more paragraphs to finish up the second turning. There are, um, it's a completely different teacher, so this would also be a good place to stop. Mm And we can pick it up from here next week. I think that's, logical, so. okay. that's a logical start. Okay. The marks. Mine's alone already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so let's just sit for a minute then. Any last questions before we release our self from intense thought processes? Just sit for a few minutes and probably get out of here a little bit before eight thirty. It's eight nineteen, right? So maybe just okay. Maybe just ten minutes. So one minute early, but we'll see. Anyway, so settle into your uh, settle into your comfort zone and. Uh, five deep breaths again at our own pace, fill up our bodies, ready them for a few minutes of uh, contemplation. Fill your body with air. We can start to explore the space again a little bit. It's fascinating to me how when we first get quiet, it seems like it's so silent. But then slowly you start to hear, for me anyway, I started to hear this noise that seemed to separate from a silent din to into. So back into the... feeling, experiencing the sounds around us you know, sometimes like in a movie a person walking towards the room they're going to open the door right? how it could have been anything see if there's a place to plant that seed that, it, that will spontaneously arise in certain situations maybe you could even decide maybe there's some specific situation that you respond to regularly in a way that you'd rather respond another. Maybe plant the seed that if something similar happens again. Thank you.